that's always a good thing when it happens early in the week, but then sometimes very challenging things altogether. Sometimes that's with human shortcomings, not being particularly good at studying. Other times it's because there are some things that the enemy of our souls doesn't want us to hear. And uh, from my experience, I'm leaning toward the latter this week. So let's, let's not be distracted this morning. Let's not just uh, get too comfortable and switch off, but let's let the Word of the Lord speak to us today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your presence that is here. We thank you, Lord, for this house full of people, Lord, and we thank you for their cooperation as we do what we can to have church but also abide by the guidelines that have been expected of us at this time. We ask you, Lord, to open our hearts today. We ask you, Lord, that your anointing would rest upon this house. Lord, I'm asking you, Lord, that you would cover this place with your blood this morning, that both its redemptive power and its protective power would be here, we pray, that you would anoint this vessel and that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. First Kings chapter 13, and we are starting to read at verse 1. I'm going to read pretty much the whole chapter. It says, And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah, by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priest of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, or we would understand that word better as torn or broken, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand, excuse me, when he put for, which he put forth against him, dried up so that he could not pull it in again to him. The altar also was rent. The ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. The king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again and became as it was before. The king said unto the man of God, Come home with me, refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way, and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Verse 11 says, Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. And their father said unto them, Which way went he? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went, which came from Judah. He said unto his son, Saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak, and said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me, and eat bread. 
And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, Thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. And he said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. And so he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. And it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet, that's the old prophet, that brought him back. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back and hast eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water. Thy carcass shall not come under the sepulchre of thy fathers. And it came to pass after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled for him the ass, that's the old prophet, to wit or to know for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. And his carcass was cast in the way, and the ass stood by it, and the lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way, and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him unto the lion, which hath torn him and slain him according to the word of the Lord, which he spake unto him. And he spake to his son, saying, Saddle me the ass. And they saddled him. And he went and found his carcass cast in the way, the ass and the lion standing by the carcass. And the lion had not eaten the carcass, nor torn the ass. And the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God, laid it upon the ass, and brought it back. And the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his carcass in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And it, come to, it came to pass after he had buried him that he spake to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the sepulchre wherein the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. Amen want to minister to you this morning about deception. Deception. To give you a little context, context rather, to this chapter, because of wickedness and sin in Israel's history, the nation has been split into two different kingdoms. They had a northern kingdom that was known as Israel and a southern kingdom known as Judah. Jeroboam, who we just read about, is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And because Jerusalem was central to Israel's worship, he was concerned that the people that he was now the king of would go back to Jerusalem to worship God and that ultimately they would return and he would lose his kingdom. And so to discourage them from going to Jerusalem, he built idols to worship, built false gods. Scripture says that he made priests from the lowest of men, or we would understand that to mean the most ungodly kind of people. And he built an altar in Bethel for this idolatrous worship to take place. It is to this altar that the unnamed prophet of God is sent to declare the judgment of God. 
And in giving the declaration, he speaks of a king that is coming whose name would be Josiah. And you can read about this later on in the scripture that everything he said came to pass that this king Josiah would be a righteous king and that he would burn the bones of the false prophets upon this altar. As, and as a sign that this was word from God, the altar would be torn or rent in two. And then we see the interaction. Jeroboam is obviously not particularly impressed with this prophet and his declaration and thrusts out his hand and says, seize him. And in the act of doing that, the Lord causes his hand to shrivel or to, to freeze up, to become disfigured, unable to function properly. Amen. And then he has a sudden change of heart and asks the prophet to pray for him that his arm might be healed and the Lord heals his arm. And then the prophet refuses the invitation of the king to come to his house and to have a meal and refresh himself, repeating the instructions that he'd received from God, that he was not to, to stop, he wasn't to eat or drink water, and he was to go home a different way from the way that he came in. Now, I can't tell you all of why God gave him those instructions, but why is not important. The fact that God did give him the instructions is what is important. And then the story progresses and we get, we're introduced to an old prophet. Not a lot of detail about this man, but the fact that another prophet had to be sent into town suggests that this old man was quite probably backslidden, that he was no longer an active prophet, that his relationship with God was not what it once was. And he hears the story from his son. He locates the prophet sitting under an oak tree, lies to him, and brings him home. And the Spirit of God speaks through the old prophet, possibly for the first time in a long time, pronouncing judgment upon the other man for his disobedience. The unnamed prophet is killed by a lion, and the old prophet buries him in his own tomb, giving instruction that he is also to be buried there when he dies. And I, I don't want to get off track, but there's a lot of, it's quite interesting to look into why where somebody's bones mattered in the Old Testament. There's a lot of significance in that. And you actually read about that when Josiah comes to that exact place later on and he takes those bones out of the tombs of those false prophets and burns them on the altar. They come to the tomb that is this old prophet who's housing his bones and the other prophet's bones and they leave them there. There's, there's a lot in that, but that's just for you to go home and have a look at it later on. But when I read the story of this unnamed prophet, it always grieves me. It always, I feel a great sense of loss because there is a man of God who was willing to stand before and against a wicked king, anointed with a message, unafraid and bold. And his message is accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders. And then to be deceived by someone he made the mistake of trusting and choosing to listen to him instead of completing his obedience to God. He hadn't completed the circuit, as it were. He hadn't finished the course of what God had told him to do. He'd gone, if you wanted to measure it, you might say he went two-thirds or maybe three-quarters through those instructions, but he hadn't finished what God had told him to do because he'd not yet got home to where he came from. And this morning, if there is something that God requires of you and you are delaying the correct response, sitting under an oak tree, as it were, 
you are at risk of hearing the counsel of the deceiver and persuading you that everything is okay. Just like the unnamed prophet, you may even see signs and wonders in your life. But if there is incomplete obedience, you've not finished the course. It's open-ended. It's not yet done. And as we see in this example, almost done can still be a terrible outcome. There is a contrast, a very strong contrast between the unnamed prophet's response to the king and the old prophet. In both situations, he repeated the instructions that God had given him directly. He, he said the same thing to, the, to Jeroboam as he did to the old backslidden prophet. But the old backslidden prophet directly contradicted the instruction of God, claiming a visitation from an angel. There's a reason why Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 1 and told them, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which you have heard, let them be accursed. To spiritualize something is never an excuse to disobey the instruction of God. Because just like us, the young unnamed prophet, it's easy to recognize a wicked king. But it's not always easy to recognize a backslidden prophet. Because we have nothing in common with a wicked king. It's obvious the difference between somebody serving God and somebody consumed with sin and wickedness as Jeroboam was. But when a false prophet uses the right words and seems to know just what to say, things can get blurry. It can become gray. See, in the Scripture, the contrast between sin and righteousness and the, in the Word of God is there for all to see. There are examples used as light and darkness. They're extremes. We don't mix them up. There's good and evil. There's the fact that the Bible tells us that the carnal mind or our, your natural unregenerate mind is not just slightly different from God, but it is enmity, which means strong hatred. That's not a slight difference of opinion. These are polar differences. These are at opposite ends of the scale, and it's, it's easy to distinguish them. And when the devil attacks you as a child of God, or he attacks us as a family of God, he's not going to make it obvious. He doesn't do it the obvious way. You know, when the devil comes against me as he does, he doesn't come and say, hey, I think you should go and get drunk, or I think you should steal your neighbor's car. Or you should rob a bank because that's so obvious. So I'm not going to do that. That's, that's a stupid thing to do. That's, that's the wrong thing to do. It would be as easy for me as recognizing a wicked king. But he comes with deception that isn't easy to see. He's going to try and slip up beside you like that old prophet and use language that sounds godly try to find some common ground and then plant a seed of doubt or a question. It's not a huge adjustment, but it's a little adjustment and it begins a course adjustment that eventually is a long way from where you were intended to be. There is, I don't know who came up with this idea, but those that study Scripture uh, have defined, if you like, certain principles or even rules that they use when we look at the Word of God. And one of those rules that they like to talk about, and some of you have heard of this, is called the law of first mention. What that means is that 
it is significant in the Word of God where you see the first mention of something. And then you look at how it tracks through the Word of God and that you look at that starting point and you examine that and you watch where it goes from there through the Word of God. simple example of that, and this is not in the slides, is Genesis 3.15, which is what is known as the first messianic prophecy or the first prophecy that there would be a Savior that would come, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. It is, that is the first mention. And we, we understand that. And so when we, with that kind of idea in mind, we go back to the very beginning and we ask the question, why did Satan choose the serpent when he approached Eve? I'm not exactly sure how that arrangement took place, but somehow he utilized the serpent to come and communicate with Eve. He did not use a water buffalo or an elephant, some big blundering, loud, noisy animal. But Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. It wasn't a water buffalo. Everybody knows when a water buffalo comes in the room. That's why we have an expression being like a bull in the china shop. Nothing subtle about that. It's chaos. It's madness. But the serpent was subtle. That word subtle means delicate, cunning, clever. He didn't just borrow some ginormous animal and charge up to even say, do the wrong thing. But subtly he came and he began to question, has God said? He began to plant doubt. Did he really mean that? Oh, when he said that, what he really meant was this. Or his reason he said that was because he doesn't want you to be happy and to be like him. He came subtly. He is the deceiver. He's, he, the de- you're not going to be tempted by a billboard, but something subtle, a seed of doubt, a thought, an unaddressed action. When God is, if God has spoken to you this morning in your life about things that he wants you to do and you've not yet responded and closed that circuit, you're open to that. I believe this is very strongly from the Lord for somebody this morning. If you have unanswered questions that God is asking you, don't leave it open and unaddressed because the deceiver comes subtly and what happens is it's very easy to begin to listen to the wrong voices. It's hard for us to reconcile how a young prophet who the Bible doesn't even bother to give us his name had such anointing that he could boldly walk into the presence of a king who he knew could kill him and prophesy against that altar and prophesy against the false worship and the false religion and the false idolatry and all the wickedness and tell those priests, those false priests who were alive that their bones were going to be burnt on their own altar. That's pretty strong. I've not tried that as a method of evangelism. But he had that boldness and that keenness of sight and that clarity of what God had told him to do until a deceiver came, until a deceiver came alongside him and said, oh, I'm just like you. You're a prophet, I'm a prophet, we should be friends. Tried to get him to come home and the the young man repeated the instruction of God And the moment the old man contradicted the word of God, that young man should have fled. But subtle. Yes, we're both prophets. Yes, that's what God told you, but an angel appeared to me. Spiritualizing it, bringing in deception. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said in 1 Corinthians 15 and 33, be not deceived. 
evil communications corrupt good manners. You've heard me teach on that first before. It's not talking about saying please and thank you and whatever else you're not supposed to do when you're polite, but it's talking about if you hang around with the wrong influences, you your character will be corrupted. Your character will suffer. You will not be able to maintain your integrity. He's saying, do not be deceived. Finish the course. If there are questions you've not yet responded to, finish the course. If God is speaking, you might think, well, it's not a heaven or hell issue. If it's something that God is talking to you about, it has the potential to become a heaven or hell issue. You might not be able to find scripture that says, well, the Bible doesn't say that if I do that or don't do that, I'll go to heaven or I'll go to hell. No, but if the Spirit of God is speaking to you and you do not respond, that act of disobedience, let's call it what it is, leaves the door open for more subtlety to come in. Amen. There is a story, and we're not going to read it for the sake of time, but you can read it later in 1 Kings chapter 22 if you're a note taker. The story of a prophet by the name of Micaiah. And uh, the setting is again in the divided kingdom. There's a, a wicked, wicked man by the name of Ahab who was the king of Israel, very wicked man, married to Jezebel, did all sorts of vile things. And in the nation of Judah, there is a good king by the name of Jehoshaphat. And Ahab gets in touch with Jehoshaphat and he says, you know, there's this town, there's this place that really belongs to our country, but the enemies have it. Will you go and fight with me and we'll take it back and restore things to how they're meant to be? And Jehoshaphat's like, yep. You're, you and me, we're family, we're brothers. It's uh, probably a mistake in the first place, but he did that. And the, the Bible says that there were 400 prophets where there with the kings and, you know, making all these great declarations of victory and conquer and, and how they just wiped the face of the earth with their enemies and it's going to be just go from strength to strength. But there was enough godliness in Jehoshaphat that he recognized these prophets were not the real deal. And he said, is there not a man of God that we could send for? And Ahab said, oh, there is this one guy. His name is Micaiah, but I don't like him because he always tells me things I don't like. And so Jehoshaphat says, let's bring him in, send for him. And so he comes in, and on the way, Ahab's servants talk to him, saying, now listen, Micaiah, when you go in for the king, say something nice to him. Don't get him upset. He's having a bad day. And Micaiah says, I'm going to say what God tells me to say. And he comes in before the king, and they say, you know, what do you think is going to happen, Micaiah? And, and Micaiah's answer is, you know, go, you'll be victorious. But there's obviously something about the manner in which he responds. He's being, we might say, a bit facetious. Because Ahab says, hey, don't mess with me. I'm paraphrasing loosely. He said, don't, don't. He said how many times have I told you, always tell me the truth. Don't play around. And so then Micaiah actually says what God wants him to say. He says, I see Israel as sheep scattered without a shepherd. He says, you need to send these men back to their homes so they don't die. And then Ahab says, see, he always tells me bad things. So there's no pleasing this guy. You tell him what he wants to hear. He says, tell me the truth. You tell him the truth. He doesn't like the truth. And there's a, that we think, you know, he's a wicked king, but there's a little bit of insight into human nature there. There's a little, because... Some people aren't necessarily listening to the wrong voice. They just don't want to hear the right voice. 
He did not want to hear what Micaiah had to say because he knew that he was out of line with God. Ahab knew that he was wicked. He wasn't wicked and ignorant. He knew he was wicked and he was wicked by choice. And so he knew that God was not pleased with him. He knew that God would not bless his efforts. And so he wanted to do what he wanted to do anyway. There are times people come to you as a pastor and they want counsel. They've already made up their mind what they're going to do. They're just hoping that you'll put a stamp of fully approved on that decision or that choice. Not really interested in what you have to say. They're just hoping their conscience will feel better if you say, yeah, that's a great idea. Because when you say that's maybe not the best decision, they're going to go ahead and do it anyway. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Here's this word again. Be not deceived. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. What you are sowing is connected to what you are willing to hear. Ahab reaped the harvest of not listening to the man of God. He went into that battle, came up with this great idea. He said to Jehoshaphat, I've got to wonder what was going on in Jehoshaphat's mind. But he said, he said to Jehoshaphat, I'm going to disguise myself and just dress like the other soldiers. You go in dressed like a king. He's basically saying, you be the target. Friends, you don't need that. And Ahab goes in dressed like a regular soldier, soldier and the scripture says that almost as if it was by accident, an arrow is loosed, hits Ahab right in the back of his harness. And he ends up dying in his chariot. And as they're washing the blood out of the chariot, the dogs lick the blood up from his feet, which is what the prophet had told Ahab was going to happen. But he didn't really come in. Amen. We have to be careful what we listen to. What we listen to affects what we sow. What we sow affects what we reap. If you know there are things God is dealing with your heart and you're not listening, you're sowing to your flesh. When, when, when the scripture talks about sowing to your flesh, that doesn't mean that you're out there doing the top 10 hits of sin of all time. It means you're not committed to God. It means that your primary goal is to get what I want, not what God wants. And you need to be very careful where the end of that will go. There's something about sin and about our natural flesh that always takes us further than we're willing to go and costs us more than we were willing to pay. Sin will do that. Amen. Amen. Let's go to Second Thessalonians chapter 6. Talking about deception. prophet who was deceived because he listened to the wrong voice and we have a king who was willingly deceived because he wouldn't listen to the right voice again to give us some context for the sake of not reading the whole chapter first thessalonians sorry second thessalonians in chapter two the apostle paul is writing in a response to a i don't think rumor is the right word but it seemed that the church at thessalonica had been told certain things that weren't true about the coming of the Lord. 
Somebody had told them that the Lord had already come and they'd missed things and there was understandably some concern in the church there that the things that they thought were supposed to happen, they'd missed something and there was, there was a bit of a commotion going on. And Paul addresses some of that and tells them that, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to reference it so I can give you a little bit more of an accurate context rather than just my ability to recall. But Paul says to them at the beginning of the chapter, he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of the Lord, by our gathering unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. And he goes on to talk about how the day of the Lord is not going to come unless certain things take place. And he talks about there being a restrainer, somebody that is holding that back. And I believe, and we're welcome to discuss this with me after you want to, but I believe that's talking about the Spirit of God and especially the Spirit of God in His church is holding back those end-time events. And one of the end-time events that is mentioned in this chapter, and this is a really poor platform because you need a lot of time to, to really lay this out, but it's talking about the coming of what the Scripture calls the Antichrist, the one that would stand up and demand worship as if he was God and bring in a system of all manner of corruption, which is a part of the judgment of God at the end of time. I believe the church is going out of here before that. Amen. I believe God is coming back for a people that when the Spirit of God and the church of God is taken out of the earth, those things will come, into, come to pass and they will come to pass quickly. But that the spirit that is behind all of that is in operation in the world right now. That's what the Bible says. Amen. And again, I apologize for not a very good platform. I'm happy to discuss that with anybody afterwards. But what we, we get to this, this climax, if you like, in the verse, in sec, chapter 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10, says this, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, because of their attitude, because of their response, because of their unwillingness to do what God wanted them to do, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the warning here is that if we find more pleasure in self-satisfaction and sin than in doing what God wants us to do, God will allow us, even facilitate, that we become deluded. Or in other words, we are convinced of a truth that is in fact false. Who is it talking about when it says them that perish? Depending on who you read, some people say it's talking about people in, in church that, that fall away from God. Some people think it's talking about people after the church is taken out of here. I believe it's talking about both. Because there will be those, the Bible lets us know, that fall away from God, that are deceived because of their preference for unrighteousness. Amen. But verse 10, I want to draw your attention to something. The reason that they are deceived by unrighteousness in the middle of the verse says, because they received not the love of the truth. That's really an interesting statement. It doesn't say that they got a love for the truth or that they chose to have a love for the truth, but it says they did not receive it. 
That implies that somebody was trying to offer it to them. When you receive the Holy Ghost, you don't just take it, but the Lord is offering the baptism of His Spirit to us. And by faith, we reach out and we receive it. We do not fill ourselves with the Holy Ghost. We do not save ourselves, but by faith we receive from God. And so what, if you'll allow me to unpack this verse a little bit, God gives all of us the opportunity to know truth, to find the truth of who He is. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. And when you have that opportunity and you respond to that opportunity, He is trying to draw you unto Himself so that He might impart to you a love for that truth. Because when we talk about truth in the context of God and His Word and the church, it's not just knowledge. The Bible does not say that we are the encyclopedias of God. It says that we are the temples of the Spirit of God. That means there is something living and powerful within us that God is moving and changing and renewing and regenerating and healing and restoring. That happens at the rate that you allow it to happen. I've said this many times, but what you receive from God is so often controlled by you. Your hand is on the tap. God is not willing that any should perish. God is generous. God wants to bless. He wants to pour out. When He describes the baptism of the Holy Ghost, He describes rivers of living water. Not thimblefuls or tablespoons or drops, but rivers. And if you've not experienced the river, you need to open that tap and let that thing flow. And when you first come in contact with God and the truth of God's Word, faith stirs in us and we hopefully choose to respond to that. But as that relationship grows, He is wanting to impart to us a love for the truth. Because knowledge is not enough. In fact, the Scripture says that knowledge puffs up, makes you proud. Pride is the grandfather of all sins. He wants us to love the truth. He's wanting to impart that to us. He's wanting us to grasp that this is not just something we can say, yeah, I passed the exam, I memorized the verses, I can answer the questions, but he's saying this is more than that. This is something that's got to become a part of our identity, a part of who we are. Otherwise, we are dangerously able to be deceived. I'm not, if you're new in your walk with God, I'm not telling you to be fearful about things you don't know. That's not what this is about. This is about a love for the one that you've already, you do know. And give him time and he will impart more of that love and more of that truth to you. A quick few references of scripture that underline this concept. John 4 and 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So truth has got to be a part of worship. John 8 and 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You will not have liberty without truth. John 14 and 6, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is a person. It's not just an idea. John 14 and 17 tells us that the Holy Ghost is the spirit of truth. This is how important that truth is. John 17 and 17 tells us that we are sanctified through the truth of God's word. In other words, you are set aside so that you will be unpolluted by the world, that God would reserve you unto Himself. Staying in a place where you are not deceived. 
Romans chapter 1, it's not in the slides, Daniel, but Romans chapter 1, somewhere in the second half of the chapter, speaking about man's downward spiral in sin, says that they did not want to retain God in their knowledge. They chose not to believe in him, but rather to trust in the philosophies of this world. If the word of God or what happens in the house of God crosses lanes with how you think, I'll tell you which one is wrong. It ain't the scripture. If we choose to not retain God in our knowledge, he will allow us to become deceived, to become deluded. John 8 and 44 gives us a powerful statement about the importance of truth. And the Pharisees who had knowledge were debating with Jesus. He said to them, you're of your father, the devil. Again, tough words. The lust of your father, you will do. He said he was a murderer from the beginning. And he abode not in the truth. He chose not to stay there because there is no truth he speaks a lie he speaks it his own for he is a liar and the father of it we just talked about the law of first mention the devil started out with deception he didn't just start out with eve he started out with part of the heavenly host deceived them took them with him then he started on the image creature on humanity he started out with deception and he has deceived all the way and as we read in first thessalonians 2 he's going to finish this with deception he's all about deceiving humanity the world, if, if you're paying any attention to what's happening in the news, prophecy is accelerating at a breathtaking speed. And the world is just going along. All the strife that we're reading about in the news and all the chaos and the infighting, and the, there is so much of that that is prophetic. Am I saying it doesn't matter, that it's, not, that it's okay? No, it's wrong, it's wicked, it's sin. But it's the fulfillment of what God said would happen in the last days. He didn't say it was going to get better. He didn't say, well, before I come back, the whole world will just be getting into shape and we'll all be friends. He said, no, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. And the love of many shall wax cold because iniquity shall abound. That's what the Bible says. And if your love waxes cold, you're open for deception. Proverbs 23 and 23, and I'm about done. I could have somebody in the piano, please. It says, buy the truth, sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. It's not talking about an actual transaction of currency. It's talking about putting a higher value on it than anything else. That the truth of who God is and what God says and what God wants is more valuable than any other voice, any other influence, any other decision. If it's not submitted and surrendered to God, your truth is still on the market. You need to buy it and take it off the market. It's not for sale. It matters more to me than anything else because when you get a hold of this, truth is not just about the Scripture. Yes, His Word is truth. It's forever settled in heaven, all Scripture given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, instruction, correction, and righteousness. The man of God may be complete. It's all God's word. Every last bit of it. But truth is more than just a printed page. Truth is the one who became flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. 
The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Truth is not just a concept. It's part of God's identity. Oh, but God is love. He's also truth. He's also holy. You know, people, people will use God is love as a cop-out for sin. Oh, but God is love. Yes, that's true. That's why he died for you. Not to overlook your sin, but to provide a solution. Because that same God that is love is a holy God that will not allow sin to enter his presence. He's a God who is truth and everything else is measured from him. That's why the Bible says, let God be true. Every man a liar. If it doesn't line up with his truth, don't look for things in this world that are compatible with the word of God. If you think that what's going on out there is compatible with Scripture, you're deceived. It ain't true. But this morning, I want us to pray that God would give us that love for the truth. Pastor, I don't want to be deceived. Amen. And amen and amen. I don't want to be deceived either. The thing about deception is that when you're deceived, you don't know it. Nobody says, oh, hey, I'm deceived. We all think we've got it okay. How do I prevent myself from being influenced by the deceivableness of unrighteousness? I'm receiving a love for the truth. I'm saying, God, I want to love you more. I want to know what your word wants me to do. I want to be obedient to your word. I want you to stand with me this morning. The Spirit of God is speaking to you. If you're sitting under an oak tree somewhere and haven't finished what he's told you to do, you need to surrender to him. Say, God, don't let me be deceived. Don't let some backslidden old prophet come walking down the road of my life and deceive me into disobedience. But let's do what he said. He said, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Don't sit in partial obedience. It's like being partially born or partially alive or partially right or partially wrong. You're either in truth or you're not. We're in the age of deception. We have a microscopic virus 